As we look at the Beatitudes, and again, this is just kind of a refresher on the Beatitudes as a whole, remember that a Beatitude is not an attitude that we're supposed to have. And the word Beatitude can be a little tricky uh, just because it sounds like attitude. But, uh, and even though we ought to have a better attitude sometimes as Christians, that's not really what the Beatitudes are talking about. But remember that the word beatitude comes from the Latin word for blessed. And if you'll notice at the beginning of every beatitude, what's the first word you see? Blessed, right. And so the beatitudes show us uh, what we must do if we want to have a life that is blessed. So we can say that beatitudes are the requirements for blessedness. And we discussed what blessedness was and, and uh, what all that pointed to. We said that Blessedness, uh, the person that is blessed is one whose life has been approved by God. The lifestyle that that person is living, the things that uh, are being manifest in their lives, uh, God approves of those things. And I think a lot of us want to believe that regardless of what we're doing, that God always approves of our lifestyle, but that's not true, isn't it? And I know that many of us today, if we were honest, we could look through our lives and would say that, uh, that God probably does not approve of my lifestyle as a whole. He, he doesn't approve of my attitude. He doesn't approve of some of the things that are coming out of my mouth on a daily basis, whether it's just foul language or whether it's just talking about others in ways that we shouldn't do. And so I know that uh, you know we could all find things that God may not approve of. And so if you want your life to be approved by God, if you want your life to be pleasing to the Lord, these are some things that need to happen. These are the things that uh, we need to be uh, focused on in our lives and asking God to uh, produce in our lives. But we also said that blessedness not only was an approval from God, but for that person whose, whose life is approved by God, for that person that is living uh, through the Spirit, who is following God's command, uh, because he knows that uh, his life is approved by God, it creates within him an inner joy regardless of outer circumstances. And we said that, that the word blessed is, it could be defined as happiness or, or as joy, but as we look at happiness and as we define happiness in our own lives, usually we are happy when things go our way, aren't we? Or we're happy whenever good things are happening to us. Or we're happy when everybody is at peace with us. Or we're happy whenever we have all the things that we think that we need or, or, or that we want. We, we define that as being happy. And so what happens is, is when those things are taken away, when people aren't at peace with us, when everything's not going our way, when troubles do come through our lives, and when the storm is passing uh, over us, then what happens? We, we just kind of lose hope or, uh, or we, we lose that joy or that happiness. But this blessedness that God is talking about is, is a way of life. It is a lifestyle that creates within us, through the Spirit, of course, an inner joy that regardless of what is happening, regardless of the storm that's passing through our lives, that we are going to have an inner joy that is unexplainable, an inner joy that others are going to look at and they're, they're going to be astounded at how we as Christians can be happy or have peace or have joy even in the midst of all of those trials of life. And isn't that what God wants from us? Aren't those very things that are going to begin pointing unbelievers towards God? And so he wants us to have a life that is blessed for our sakes and then, of course, 
for the sakes of others as well. We said the Beatitudes show us what it truly means to be a Christian. And so we said that the Beatitudes answer for us the question, am I a Christian? And we can just go right down the line, am I a Christian? And the Beatitudes come back and they ask, are you poor in spirit? Do you mourn over your sin? Are you meek? Uh, Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Are you merciful? Are you pure in heart? Do you make peace with others? Are you a peacemaker? And are you persecuted? And all those things, uh, of course, are addressing to us, am I truly a Christian? And so I want us to keep this in mind as we go back through uh, the Beatitudes very briefly this morning. First of all, we're going to look at blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's look at verse 3. That's what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we said, poor in spirit is a correct estimate of oneself as viewed uh, from a correct estimate of God. It's when we realize that uh, in light of who God is, uh, we realize who we truly are. It's a proper assessment of who we are in, uh, in the presence or uh, in the face of God. And so as we stand again before God's Word, and as we uh, come to that realization of who God is, and uh, we see how holy and how righteous and how good that He truly is, as we stand in that presence, we, we're, it's going to cast light on how, how unholy and how unrighteous that we truly are in our own lives. And I think this happens several times. It's not one, a one-instance type thing because we can, uh, we can deceive ourselves and we can forget sometimes uh, you know, how or what we truly are. And so there are many times when we're stood, uh, we're, we're called to stand before God, we're called to stand before the truth and realize what we truly are. Now, although God was not, or Jesus was not speaking about financial poverty when he said poor in spirit, uh, I think that financial poverty can, uh, can truly illustrate what he is getting at or what he is talking about here. And we said that those who are in true poverty have taken awareness of how much they really need God. One who has nothing, one who is in, in real financial poverty, uh, they, they're brought to a point in their lives where they can't depend on themselves. And, and really, uh, what they find is, and they wind up getting angry about this, I know, I deal with it quite a bit, but what happens is, is when they're in that need, they realize they really can't depend on anybody else either. And there may be some that they could go to and they may receive help from, from here and there, but, but that real utter financial poverty that people get in, I think it brings them to a place where they either just are destroyed or they're going to eventually look to God and, and, uh, and uh, depend on Him for the needs that come through their lives. Well, in much the same way, one who is poor in spirit, in spirit excuse me, realizes their true spiritual poverty. They realize that, uh, that in terms of true spiritual righteousness, that they stand poor and miserable and blind and empty before God. Being poor in spirit is realizing how spiritually bankrupt we are. And so if we were to look in, a, in our bank account of righteousness, many of us may have deceived ourselves that in our bank of righteousness, in our account, that we've got plenty. And, uh, and we may be walking around like millionaires in terms of righteousness, 
but we're bouncing checks everywhere we go. Anybody ever been there in that in that sense of financially? Where you think you got money in the bank and then you check it one day? And sometimes there's a minus before the number, right? Anybody ever been there? When he says poor in spirit, I, I think that's what he's talking about. It's where we we have convinced ourselves that we are truly righteous. We've convinced ourselves that, that God is probably happy with how we are and that we can, let, we can let a little sin in and still be over, you know, in all those other ways, we can still be righteous. And then uh, when, we, when we look into that account and it says balance zero, that's where we realize something's wrong. If it's our real checking account, we go into panic mode, Right? <laughs> And we're, start, we're starting to look for how we're going to pay these bills. We have nothing. And so when we're poor in spirit and we look into that spiritual account and we see that zero balance, that, that poverty before God, we, we fall before Him realizing that we really have nothing to offer. In humility, we drop all those acts or notions of self-righteousness that we've been carrying around and understand that in terms of self-worth, we are empty-handed. And that's, if you remember the, the message on poor in the Spirit, that was uh, one of the main things I was trying to bring out to you is that so many of us, we, we come to church and we come before God and we're carrying all these good works that we've done. We're carrying around, hey, listen, I, I, I went to church on Wednesday night or I went to RU or I, I, I come to Sunday school or I do this or I do that. I gave money to the poor or I helped this person out or I, uh, I sent a card to this person when they were sick or not feeling well, or I, I did this or that, and we, we carry all this stuff in before God. And we come to church, and, and uh, the preacher's preaching, and, and, uh, and, and the Lord is speaking to our hearts, but, but we've got all this stuff in our hands. We're saying, no, God, you're happy with me. Look at all that I've been doing. And so poor in spirit is where we realize that all these works that we think we have done or all this, all this good we think is in us, we realize that we're actually empty-handed before Him. And we drop it all and stand empty-handed before God. And I know that sounds demeaning, but I want you to know that's where God wants you. God... You have to be there. Because until you are, God can't do anything with you. Until you drop all the stuff that you're doing for God, He can't use you. And so it has to begin with a, a poverty of spirit, with being poor in spirit and realizing our true bankruptcy before Him. Now what happens to those who are poor in spirit? He says... In verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is what I want us to realize again, is that it's not just that, uh, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, it's not just that we ought to be poor in spirit, but I want you to understand that, that poor in spirit is the very gate into the kingdom. It is the very entrance into the kingdom of God. Until you are poor in spirit, until you drop all of your own self-righteousness and all of your self-sufficiency and all of, all of yourself, until you lay that all out before God and realize that you have nothing to give, 
Listen, salvation is not going to come to you. Salvation is where we realize that I can't earn God's forgiveness. I can't earn God's approval. I don't have the power to do this. And we stand empty-handed and we come before Christ. We come before the cross and we say, Lord, I know that I can't. But you have paid for it all. And I'm coming to you in faith, trusting and, and seeking your forgiveness and your salvation. That's the very entrance into the kingdom. And then, of course, there's a, a manner of life that we are to live that is consistently uh, poor in spirit. That leads us to the next beatitude. Blessed are they that mourn in verse 4. Verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now the kind of mourning that Jesus spoke of here is not merely an affliction of the mind or a self-induced sadness. I don't think in any degree that, uh, that the Lord is talking about Christians ought to walk around with uh, you know, just moping and, and just sad or bitter or aggravated, which is how most Christians walk around all the time. Uh, but that's not what Jesus meant when He said uh, to, be, to be mourning uh, over sin or blessed are those that mourn. It's not some kind of affliction of the mind, but it's very specifically a deep sorrow over one's true sinfulness. Again, those that are poor in spirit are those who, through the Spirit's working in their heart, they realize their spiritual poverty. And so in recognition of how truly sinful they are, they mourn over the sin in their lives. You know, I think this is, of course, one of the fundamental problems that we see in Christianity is that we have many Christians who are living in sin, who, who, where sin passes through life every day and it doesn't bother them. We've got church members on pews across the world who, can, who could sit in church and feel completely comfortable when the preacher's preaching on specific things that they're doing in their lives. They're not mourning. They're not sorry for what they're doing. They're not sorry for their sin. I, I want you to know that's a very, very dangerous place to be. I think that's a place where we need to really be reflecting on, do I know Jesus as much as I think I do or like I think I do? But see, when we are poor in spirit, when we realize our true spiritual poverty, we're going to see the sin. We're going to become more sensitive to the sin that passes through our lives. And so when we do sin against God and, and we do fall and we do all those things that we know are not right, and, and listen, we are going to sin as children of God, are we not? We are going to sin. John said if, if we say we don't have sin, we're liars. And so sin is going to come through our lives, but there is a, there's a process that we're supposed to go through where God's Spirit speaks to our heart and where He makes us sorry for what we've done, and we go to Him for forgiveness and we allow Him to clean up that sin from our lives. And so He says, blessed are those that mourn. They're, they're mourning over what sin is coming through their lives. They're sorry for the sinfulness because that's the only way they're ever truly going to, to reach the righteousness that God expects. He says, blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are they that mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. It's in those times when we have sinned against God. And His Spirit is pressing on us. And we know that we were wrong. And we're miserable And we seek His forgiveness. It's in those times that God 
wraps his arms around us. And he comforts us and lets us know, Son, it's okay. I paid for that. I died for that. I forgive you. But you see, when when there's not remorse, when there's not mourning, when when we're not sorry for the sin in our lives, we can pray a prayer that that asks for forgiveness, but there's, there's going to be no real comfort that comes to us. There has to be a poverty. There has to be a mourning. God has to... Uh, to, to work through these things in order to bring us to the point that He wants us to be. That leads us to the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, as we see there in verse 5. Now again, just very quickly, meekness is a proper assessment of who we are. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not, uh, it's not crouching to any kind of, uh, of confrontation. It's not... It's not uh, huddling away or, or, uh, or covering your eyes to, uh, to any of those confrontational situations that we may come to. As a matter of fact, a meek person will confront wrongdoing. A meek person will confront sin. The only difference is, is that a meek person, when he confronts those things, is going to do it right. <laughs> when we're not meek and we confront those things, we're going to mess it up every time. And so a meek person does not, uh, does not hide away. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't uh, hide from the confrontations that he must encounter in life. But when he goes, he, he's going to have a, a spirit of meekness and humility. Again, meekness is a proper assessment of who we are. And so if in poor, being poor in spirit, we get a correct estimate of ourselves, viewed from a correct estimate of God, and the second beatitude, if we're mourning and we're sorry over our sinfulness, we have this recognition of what we really are, then in meekness, the third beatitude, we're going to be living, our life is going to be uh, experienced through that proper assessment of self. Now listen, I, I, want, I want you to see the difference between the two. If I'm not poor in spirit, if I'm self-righteous, if I'm not mourning over my sin, but I've become hard-hearted, then in life, how am I going to come across to others? I'm going to be prideful. I'm going to be arrogant. I'm going to be harsh. I'm going to be brash. I'm going to be judgmental. I'm going to retaliate when people do things against me. Why? Because, because in my mind, when someone says something against me or someone does something wrong to me, in my mind, when, when I don't have a correct estimate of who I am, when I've got this blown up, ego that, that makes me think I'm something that I'm really not, that when people do things wrong to me, my reaction is going to be, do you not know who I am? How could you do that to me? But when we have poverty of spirit, when we've been emptied of self-righteousness, when our hard heart has been softened, God takes out that heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. When our heart is soft towards our sin, and we, we're sorry, and we mourn, and we realize what we really are, then life is going to be experienced in a totally different way. And when people begin to say things against us, or do things against us, 
we're not going to be lifted up in pride, but in humility, we're just going to accept what they say. Remember we said that meekness is allowing others to say about me what I say about myself. So in, in poverty of spirit, and being poor in spirit, and mourning over my sin, I'm saying about myself, God, I admit, I am a sinner. God, I admit, I am empty of righteousness. God, I admit that I am not the Christian that I need to be. And so when other people start saying that about us, and we hear those things come back to us, we're able to agree with them. You know what? You're exactly right. I am low down. I am good for nothing. I allow others to say about myself. I'm not going to retaliate when people do things against me, but but in that humility of mind and, and recognition of what I am, I'm going to just allow them to say what they want to say. Plus, I know that the Lord said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so if God wants to retaliate, I'll let him do that, right? But I'm going to have a, a spirit of meekness and humility. We say that meekness is power under God's control. In meekness, we forget who we are and instead become focused on whose we are. And so in meekness, I'm no longer this person that, that, that doesn't deserve wrongdoing or, or that should never have anything bad happen to them. But in meekness, I realize that I am a child of the King and that things are going to happen to me and that people are going to uh, do things wrong against me. And as we'll see later on in the, in the Beatitudes, there is going to be persecution, but when that comes, I realize that I'm still His. And so there's no, no need to act out. Meekness is having power. It's having the power, excuse me. It's having the power and the right and the occasion to act in a way that promotes self, but choosing instead to promote Christ. Now what about those who are meek? He said they're blessed. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. One of the greatest truths that we often overlook as Christians is that we are truly the richest people on earth. If all things belong to God, if Christ is the heir of all things, and if we are joint heirs of Christ, then we literally have the potential of inheriting the earth, as he says there in verse 5. Now that leads us to the sixth beatitude. Blessed are they that hunger, in verse 6. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now as we see here, uh, there's two words that he puts out. He says, hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst. It's an emptiness in, uh, in us. If I am hungry, if I am thirsty, that means that I have been emptied of food or I have been emptied of, uh, of drink. And so uh, hungering and thirsting after righteousness is, is where we empty ourselves of all self-righteousness. That's really done through the first three Beatitudes. The hunger that, that this verse talks about begins with an emptiness in ourselves. We realize that there is a void. There is a lack of sustenance or self-sufficiency in our lives. As we see in verses 3-5, through five, that poverty spawns hunger. When I'm poor, when I'm mourning, when I am meek, that, that humility, that emptiness is going to make me hungry for the real stuff. See, a lot of us have been living on junk food, spiritually, on, on self-righteousness. And we've been trying to do all of God's work through self-righteousness. But in the Beatitudes, we get emptied of all that. 
We, we clean ourselves out of all that junk that's been in our lives. And when you get off your junk food, what happens? You're going to get hungry for the real stuff, right? And you're going to start wanting what's good for you and what is going to last and what is going to be right and healthy for you. And so in that, in that emptying of self, we begin to hunger, to crave God's righteousness. You see, not only are we not righteous, but we are unable to produce our own righteousness. And so if we who are sent for to live in a kingdom of righteousness, then we must find it somewhere else because we are, again, totally spiritually starving. And so we crave God's righteousness. Just as many of the people that Jesus spoke to had learned to depend solely upon God to fill their bellies and to quench their thirst, Jesus taught them that in the kingdom of God, true righteousness can only come from the King. And so the Beatitudes, we become needy beggars at the King's door. We're banging on the door. We're screaming, Lord, I need Your righteousness if I'm to live in this kingdom. I need You to provide. Now what happens when we do that? We look in the end of verse 6, it says, Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be turned away. They will be scolded. That's what we do to the hungry and thirsty, don't we? No, but he says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Here we see a beautiful transition take place. Having been emptied in the first three, three Beatitudes of all self-righteousness or all false righteousness, we stand empty and starving for the true righteousness of God. And so in this, in this uh, Beatitude, uh, what we do is we ask, we go to Him for His, and what does He do? He gives. He returns uh, that, that the true righteousness to us. He fills us with His righteousness. And when we're filled with His righteousness then in the Beatitudes we begin to produce things that are truly godly and righteous. And so it leads us to the the next Beatitude in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now again, we said mercy is more than mere emotion, but in the New Testament it's almost always used within the context of action. Mercy is compassion that moves us to action. It moves us to, to do something. We become so filled with compassion, with the compassion of Christ, that it begins to overflow into acts of mercy. Those in need of mercy fall into three categories, as we said. Those three categories start with this. It's, it's those who have wronged themselves. We talked about that. Those who have been wronged by others, and then, of course, those that have wronged us. And we are to be showing mercy to all three of those different groups. Mercy then is being able to look past the sin and to have compassion on the sinner. And so we may be bugged with the guy that's on the corner with a sign saying uh, hungry and homeless and, and uh, whatever it else it says that he needs. And, and uh, he may not have any intention whatsoever of using the money you give him to buy food with. And he may not have any intention of, of, of really getting his life together. And, and we, we become cold-hearted sometimes towards those. But mercy is, we realize that he has harmed himself. He has wronged himself. 
But it, it's the sin in him that has caused this to happen. And so we look past the sin, we look past the sin and we see the person that's there. And we have compassion on him. For those that have, uh, have been wronged by others, we, we understand and we have compassion on them. And then especially that mercifulness is seen in those who have wronged us. And even in the midst of, of the hurt and the pain and, and just the, the not being able to understand why in the world they would do this, we understand that, that behind whatever this is that they're doing, whatever this action is that they're, they're having towards us, we know that that is sin and behind there is a person that God loves. Behind there is a person that may need Jesus. And so we look past and we have compassion on the person. We said that those of us who have been saved, we ought to be merciful because God has been merciful to us. And even when we were sinners, even when we had wronged Him to the highest degree, when we had broken His law, and He had every right to act out against us, every right to destroy us or to, to pour His wrath upon us, that God looked past the sin and He saw me. And if He could show me mercy, Jesus says we ought to show mercy to others. Now what happens to a person that receives mercy? It says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That leads us to the next beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart. In verse 8, for they shall see God. Very quickly, I'm just going to cover this beatitude. We have one more after this, uh, but, uh, or a couple more after this, but, but just please pay attention and listen to what's being said here. The pure in heart that we talked about, pure means not mixed or adulterated with any other substance or material. Uh, a pure heart is one that is not mixed or adulterated with sin. Purity is holiness without exception. And so the pure in heart are those who have decided that there is no place for sin in their lives. And as they stand before God, having been emptied of self-righteousness, having been filled with His righteousness, as they stand before God, they, uh, they, they open all of those hidden compartments and allow them to be unfolded. They present their whole hearts before God in single-mindedness towards Him. If you remember the illustration I gave of the paper, and I have one that had been folded up, and I, I said this represents the, our heart. And in our hearts, we, we have different compartments where we tuck things away. And, and sometimes those things are, uh, are anger or resentment towards others. Sometimes those things are just, just things that we love or, or things that, that we really cherish in our lives. We have a compartment for God, and we know that because you're sitting here this morning, right? And so there is a, a compartment for God, so you're going to fill that up this morning, we're not going to see you the rest of the week. Are you going to fill that up this morning? You're not going to have to need Jesus the rest of the week. And so we're, we're going to fill that compartment up. We've got that little compartment for God. And then we've got our secret compartment that we don't let anybody know about. And that's the stuff we don't want people to see. But we've got all those compartments in our hearts. And, he's, and what we said is that the pure in heart is one who just unfolds all that. Who lets God clean out all those compartments and we give our heart completely to Him. And listen, it doesn't mean that we can't have things that we love. I think it means that we should stop having those secrets, right? But there, there's still things that we should love. But he's going, to clean, he's going to clean out all those other compartments. 
And listen, when we give our hearts to Him, when, when we unfold all those things and, and we empty out all those compartments and we just give our hearts to Him, then we're going to, we're going to have a heart that truly loves others. We're going to have a heart that is, is truly able to, uh, to meet the needs of others in our lives. We're going to learn what it means to really give our hearts to our families and really give our hearts to the good things in life and to others. And, but we can't do that until we give our hearts completely to God and allow Him to purify and clean those, those hearts with unrighteous compartments. Blessed are the pure in heart. It says, For they shall see God. We talked about three ways in which they would see God. They would see Him in life. When we're pure in heart, when we're not so focused on all this other stuff, but we have a pure heart before God, we're going to see Him working in our lives. When we have a pure, a pure heart, we're going to have fellowship. We're going to see Him in fellowship. There's going to be a, a closer relationship between us and Him. And then, of course, uh, the, the, the most extreme level of that is, is that one day we are going to see God in heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That leads us to the next one. Blessed are the peacemakers in verse 9. For they shall be called the children of God. Again, quickly, peace is defined as the ceasing of strife or dissension between two who are uh, at enmity with one another. We gave some uh, prerequisites to being a peacemaker. And so we said that if you're ever going to be a real peacemaker with God, then there has to be peace in three areas. First of all, there has to be peace with God between you and Him. There has to be peace with God. There has to be peace within yourself. And there has to be peace with others. If there's not peace in those three areas, and we don't get to choose which ones we want, if there's not peace in those three areas, we will be a horrible peacemaker. We're going we're to cause more fires than we'll ever be able to put out. And so there has to be peace between us and God. And let me say that needs to be the first one. And if we'll just get peace with God, He'll make peace within ourselves, and He'll, he'll cause us to be at peace with others. That's just, this is how it's naturally going to flow. And so we don't need to start focusing on others. We don't need to start focusing on ourselves. We focus on God. He'll put the rest in order. But there has to be peace in those three areas before we can truly begin to help others make peace in their own lives. Our purpose in the kingdom of heaven Again, it's to be a priestly nation who will stand in the gap and work towards reconciliation between God and man. And so in the life of a Christian, there are going to be several areas that we're going to have to work uh, for peace in. We're going to have to help people uh, make peace between themselves and others. We're going to have to help people sometimes have peace within their own selves. There are people at war with themselves. Constantly in daily battles with themselves. And so we as peacemakers, we who know the true and living God, are going to have some times where we're going to be put in places where we need to help people have peace within themselves. But the biggest area, the most important area, where we need to help others with peace is in the peace that they need to have with God. And so as this priestly nation, we stand in that gap between God and man and begin to minister to them and to bring them to the person who has true peace, God. Listen, God wants to be at peace with all mankind. And so it said, if poor, is the, poor in spirit is the gate into the kingdom, 
we said that the peacemaker is the goal. I mean, in the Beatitudes and, and those qualities of self, it starts with poor in spirit, but that process that God wants to bring us to, the, the reason why He wants us to be uh, merciful and why He wants us to be pure in heart is so that eventually we can become peacemakers between God and man. I mean, that's why we're here. If we were not here for that reason, understand me. If we were not here for that reason, God could have just taken us home. He could have just taken us right to heaven and He could have emptied all self-righteousness and filled us with all the good stuff. Right there, in heaven. But He left us here for something. To be citizens, resident citizens of the kingdom of heaven. To do what? To reach out to the other nations and say, listen, there is a God over all. And He wants peace with you. He's He's made the way through Christ who shed His blood on the cross, who who died for your sins, who rose again the third day. He's made the way back to Him. And so I am a representative of His kingdom and I'm telling you, there is a way back to God and you need to take it. And we begin helping others to, uh, to be reconciled with God. We have this ministry of reconciliation. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God, as we see at the end of verse 9. And then the very last thing. Hold on just a few more minutes with me here. The last thing is, blessed are the persecuted, in verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we've looked throughout the Beatitudes, we've seen that the intended Christian life is so countercultural. It's so vastly different from the attitudes and actions of the society around us that persecution is the world's natural response towards all those who pattern their lives after Christ. The first seven Beatitudes then show us what a Christian looks like. And, uh, and really what we see in the persecuted is that's not an, it's not something that we are to take on. It's not something that, that, that God's going to produce in us. It's not some characteristic uh, that, that we have to be showing in our own lives. But as we've looked through pouring the Spirit all the way up to peacemakers, that's what a Christian ought to look like. The, the last beatitude, the eighth beatitude, is, what's, is the natural response that the world's going to give to those who are truly Christians. And so again, the first seven beatitudes will produce true Christianity in us. The eighth beatitude, the final beatitude, is going to be what the world will do to us in return. It shows us how a Christian will be received in this world. As much as a Christian can be identified by his poor spirit, his meek disposition, and his merciful actions, so will he be identified through persecution. Jesus said if they hated him, then they will, they will hate those who act like him. The persecution that Jesus spoke of here is the suffering that is inflicted upon those who live righteously. And so it's not suffering for us doing things that are silly or wrong or fanatical, but he says that when we suffer for righteousness' sake, that's when we are blessed, and that's when the reward comes. If we, live, if we choose to live a life that is led by the Spirit, that is governed by the Word of God, and characterized by the Beatitudes, then listen, you will be persecuted. There is no way around it. And so I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. Am I a Christian? I mean that. Ask yourself that question right now. Am I a Christian? Here's the, here's the final test. 
if you're a Christian. And this is, this is going to be what, what really tests all the other Beatitudes. It's going to test whether you're really poor in spirit, whether you're really uh, mourn over sin, whether you're really a meek person, whether you're really hungry and thirst after righteousness, whether you're really merciful or pure in heart, or any of those other things. It's going to test all of it. Whether you're really a peacemaker, here's the final test. Are you a Christian? Are you being persecuted? Do people hate you? Do people misuse you? Do people gossip about you because of your righteousness, not because of the stupid things you do? Do people harass you for your faith? If not, you don't have to like it. But if not, you're not a Christian. Now, some of us are in situations where we're at home. And some of us are in situations where we're not in the world all the time. And so some of that's going to be drastically cut down, cut, cut back. But I'm talking about those that are engaged in the world, those that are out there every single day, and we're in the presence of the world. We're in the presence of, of those that do not believe in God. Are you being persecuted? Or do people just look at you as, as just one of the rest of them? Do they think you're cool? They think you're okay? They like you? There's something wrong. The world don't like Jesus. And if we're acting like Jesus, the world's not going to like us. And so it's really the test. It's really the greatest test as, as to whether or not we're doing any of those other Beatitudes because if we do, they're not going to like us. People are going to insult you. They are going to criticize you. They are going to laugh at you. They're going to scorn you. They're going to betray you. They're going to hate you. They're going to falsely accuse you if you live for Christ. But he says, Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you hadn't noticed the connection here, I want you to look at the blessedness in verse 3. The first beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the gate. That's the entrance. That's the first. And then we go all the way over to the eighth beatitude. And it says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's all about this kingdom. It's all about what it means to live in this kingdom and, and what a true child of God, what a true citizen of God's kingdom is going to live like and look like in his own life. And so there's a question we need to ask ourselves this morning. If I'm in the kingdom, do others know it? Am I, if I'm in the kingdom... Am I what my king wants me to be? Am I the citizen that I should be? Am I the Christian that Christ has called me to be? And if not, what needs to happen in my life to produce those right things within me? I want us to stand this morning.